Jordan Howell. I'm a men's ministry leader here with Salt Company. And uh, it's currently my favorite season. Does anybody know what season it is? Is it fall? Is it winter? No. It's called eating season. All right. So if you haven't heard of eating season before, welcome to eating season. It started last Friday because it's the day after Halloween, which means discount candy. Anybody? Yep. Discount candy. Three weeks until Thanksgiving, seven weeks until Christmas, eight weeks until New Year's, and 12 weeks until the Super Bowl. We're set. We're going to be eating for the next few months. So welcome to eating season. Um, You guys will notice that I wear a lot of like crew necks and like zip ups and stuff, and it's so I can hide my food, baby. So um, yeah, welcome to eating season. I hope you guys join me. Uh, On the topic of gaining weight, I figured I'd share with you guys a fun story about my life. Um, Some of it might be surprising, some of it might not. So freshman, sophomore year of high school, this dates back to 2007. I was a cross-country runner, and this was solely for the reason that I was too small to play football. Anybody surprised by that? Yeah, not really. Uh, I wrestled 103 pounds, so some of you especially some of you guys probably weighed 103 pounds when you were like six. Um, I was like, hey, if I play football, I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to run cross country. Uh, Fast forward to the end of my sophomore year of wrestling season, so it's March, our football coach comes to me and he says, hey, Jordan, um, you're an athlete, and I've seen you wrestle, and I think you you could lay a hit on some dudes on the football field. I want you to play football. And I decided, you know what? Hitting dudes sounds fun. As long as I'm the one doing the hitting and not taking the hitting, I'll say yes. So he says, all right, sweet, you're on the football team. But the thing was, I couldn't just call myself a football player. I couldn't just say, oh, sweet, I'm on the football team. Now I'm a football player because I was still built like a cross-country runner. I was scrawny and had no meat on my bones. So I had to adapt a new lifestyle. If I was going to play football, I had to do football things, a.k.a. find the weight room, start moving weight, and start eating like I've never eaten before. So over the course of five months, I grew zero inches, again, not a surprise, and I gained 47 pounds. Yeah, your boy had a little weight on him. Not all good weight either, but I decided, you know what, I'm going to play football, and that means leaving my cross-country life behind because cross-country and football don't match. Football is six-second plays, sprints, explosive. Cross-country is be scrawny, run three miles, don't lift a weight because you might get too big. They didn't line up. And so if I was going to be a football player, I had to leave my cross-country life behind. That meant gaining weight. That meant getting built, right? As we dig into tonight's text, we're actually going to see Paul talking to Ephesian believers and us about a similar topic, not weight gain, no, not football, no, transformation. Paul is writing to Ephesian believers to talk about transformation. He's going to open our eyes to what God in Christ is doing to us, what he has done to us, painting this picture of the old life and the new life. 
Let me ask you guys a few questions here before we dig in. If how you live shows which team you belong to, what team are you on? Are you living for Jesus or are you living for the world? If you call yourself a Christian, if you say you believe in Jesus, how have you seen him changing your lifestyle? Or have you not experienced any change? And if I were to go to your closest community and ask them about you, what would they say? Would they be able to tell me what team you're on? So if you guys would, uh, open with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're picking up in verse 17. It's going to be on the screen as well. Uh, We're just going to start in verses 17 through 19. Okay, so Paul writes, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We're introduced to this first lifestyle. And Paul says, this is the lifestyle of the Gentiles. But it's interesting because he's writing to a group of Gentiles. We saw that back in chapter 3. So when he says, don't live like the Gentiles do, he's not saying, like, don't live like a set race or group. He's saying, no, the Gentiles was a moral term talking about people that didn't belong to God initially. So he's speaking on their terms. He's speaking their vernacular. He says, don't live like people who don't know God. Don't walk as the Gentiles do. And then he goes into this description of what it looks like to walk like a Gentile. And I want to walk through it with you guys because there's some unique terms that need explanation. They need us to flesh them out. So the first term that he says is they're in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding. What does that mean? Do these people not know enough about God? Is that why? Like, do they not understand God because they just don't know about him? That's not what Paul's talking about. And he references this in Romans 1, actually, telling believers in Rome, he says, If we don't honor God, if we're darkened in our understanding, it's not because we don't know enough. It's actually because we're suppressing the truth. Because we can look around, we can see the trees, the changing colors, we can look around at one another and we can see that God is real. We have a moral compass within us that can tell us right from wrong. We know the truth, The question is, are we submitting to the truth? Are we willing to not only say, okay, there is a God, but I'm going to follow God? And as we suppress this truth, we see that we are darkened in our understanding, and we have the futility of our minds. The word futility means purposelessness or worthlessness. So as we suppress the truth, our minds start to run to things that 
lack purpose and worth, which at the end of the day is what all of us are looking for, is purpose and worth. So we're suppressing the truth, and I have to ask the question, is there an area of your life that you've been suppressing the truth? And if so, we're about to get into the consequences if you continue in that. Is there something God is asking you to do that you haven't done? Maybe because it's scary, maybe because it's costly, maybe because it looks a lot different than what everybody around you is doing. Have you been suppressing that? Here's the result. If we suppress the truth, it says that they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Hard-heartedness comes from suppressing the truth. As we see God working, as we sense this moral compass and we suppress it and we follow our own way, our hearts actually begin to change. Hardness of the heart is an increasing inability to follow God. You become hard to God because you've been suppressing him. You're closing him out, you're keeping him out of your life, and your willingness to be loyal becomes increasingly difficult. That leads to being alienated from the life of God. Being alienated, separated from the life of God, and yeah, it's easy for us to sometimes say, that's not fair, <laughs> right? Or you'll hear, you'll hear pe- people on your campuses say, that's not fair. That wouldn't be who God is to alienate us from him. No, here's the deal. We have separated ourselves from God. That's the truth. We have a God that pursues us, a God that actually created us to be with him, but our sin has separated us from God. It's not that he is pushing us away. No, we are pushing ourselves away from God. That's what the Bible says. It says we're alienated from God due to the hardness of our hearts, which we caused ourselves. It's leading down a dark path. Verse 19 continues saying they've become callous. Has anybody had a callous before? Yeah. A callus, my hands are lined with them, is thick skin. And when you have callus, it makes you unable to feel. It makes you numb. So it says they're alienated from God and they're actually, they've become callous. They can't feel God or sense God anymore. And they are continuing on, giving themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's this ongoing process of wanting more and more of what is contrary to what God has designed for your life. And guess what? You will never be fulfilled. I tell you that from firsthand experience. I've been there. Whether it's chasing money, whether it's chasing relationships, whether it's chasing a better grade, you name it, a better place to live, you will never be full. If you are not living for God, you will never be full. 
and it's true here. It says they're greedy. They always want more. The question is how much is enough? Because you'll see people that have millions of dollars and they still struggle with depression because they found out that millions of dollars can't buy their happiness. There's a quote that I uh, enjoy and I'm stealing, but it's worth hearing. It says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That is true. If you give sin an inch, it'll take you a mile. You will always want more. And walking without Jesus, this first lifestyle, promises you many things. You're promised a mind that lacks meaning and worth. You're promised a heart that is alienated, separated from God, and a life that is unfulfilling. You will always want more. Maybe some of this feels a little bit too familiar. Paul's writing to Ephesian believers saying, this is your past life, but maybe for you tonight, maybe this is your current life. Maybe you're sensing that, man, I feel it. You know, I've been callous. I don't sense God working in my life. I've been giving myself over to more and more sin. I'm unfulfilled. Paul pleads with the Ephesians, and I plead with you tonight, you must no longer walk like this. Stop walking like this because there is a better lifestyle for you. It doesn't have to be this way anymore, and we see that as we continue on in our text. I'll read 20 through 24. Paul says, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is writing to Christians and he's saying, this is not the life you have because you have learned the truth in Christ. Note in verse 20, he, he doesn't say, that is not the way you learned about Christ. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Two weeks ago, I talked about this saying, it's not about how much we know about God, but it's about knowing God. It's about firsthand experience, knowing God on a first name basis, being in communion with him. Paul says, this is true of you. You don't just know about God. You don't have empty religion. No, you have relationship with Christ. And he begins this beautiful contrast between life apart from God and life with God. It says, you are not darkened and ignorant anymore. No, you have been taught in Jesus. You no longer have a futile mind. It's no longer without purpose. No, you know the truth. But what truth? What truth is in Jesus? The truth is that Jesus came on a rescue mission to save you from your former life. He knew that you were dead in your sin. 
he knew that you were alienated from the Father. And the only way to have a restored relationship is for Jesus Christ to come, live a perfect life, die a gruesome death, and rise from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan. Jesus knew that that was necessary, and he did it. And you know what the result was? What the result continues to be for people today? That as we trust in Jesus, his spirit lives inside us. And we are invited into this same transforming work. We share in Christ's death, we die to our old life, and we share in his resurrection, he gives us new life. We share in his death, burial, and resurrection. We die to the person we used to be, the character we used to be. And we are alive to a new person made new in Christ Jesus. You see, we have this contrast between the old self and the new self. The old self, as I said earlier, you're given over to be greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's this ever-deepening corruption, this constant desire for more and more sin. But no, your new self, your new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You have the renewal of your mind. What used to be an ever-increasing desire for sin is now the constant renewing of your mind. So I have to ask, if you have been made new in Jesus, if you claim to be made new in Jesus, are you renewing your mind? Are you sensing that your mind is being renewed day by day by day? Because that is a promise of Scripture. I'm challenged by the question, are you reading more social media feed or your Bible? What are you doing to renew your mind? Believer, what are you doing to renew your mind? Because Jesus has more for you. He has more to show you of himself. And as your mind continues to be renewed, you will fall more and more in love with Christ. Your old self was alienated from God, separated from God. Your new life is you are like God, made in the image of God in righteousness and holiness. So you who were once far off, God in Christ has brought you near. You used to be separated, but now Jesus lives inside you. So again, I have to ask, are you looking more like the world or are you looking more like Jesus? A gut check. But Paul gives this as this pump up talk. He's saying, no, this is true. This is what's who of you, this is what's true of you. This is who you are. That's your old life, this is your new life. You have a renewed mind. You are made in the image of God. Christ is inside you. He's pumping us up. He's giving us this pregame speech because he's about to take us into the game, right? I'll stick with the football analogy. We have the coach that's firing us up, and he's about to take us out. Y'all ready to play? 
Yeah? Come on. I'm warning you, it's football. You're going to take some hits. You guys ready to play? Y'all ready? All right. One play at a time. Paul's going to get really tangible, and guess what? Might hurt a little bit. So buckle up. Strap up your pads. One play at a time. We'll start with verse 25. Paul says, Therefore, okay, you have new life in Christ. Old is gone, new has come. You put off the old, you put on the new. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Play number one, replace lying with telling the truth. Paul continues this emphasis in Ephesians about unity. He says, you're members of one another, you're a family, you're one body. And telling lies only divides us. Telling the truth is what brings us together. How have you been lying? Who do you need to tell the truth to? All of the truth. Because a white lie is still a lie. Who do you need to tell the truth to? Verses 26 and 27. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Play number two. Replace sinful, stored-up anger with anger that is sinless and short or brief. Paul is quoting Psalm 4, which is a psalm in the Old Testament of David who has plenty of reason to be angry. He's surrounded by ungodliness and that is provoking him. He is upset at the ungodliness around him, but what he does is he says, be angry, but do not sin. He shifts his focus from his anger on to God, the provider of his joy and peace, and he says, anger is not going to control me. It's an emotion. God doesn't ask us to be people without emotion, but he says, be angry, but do not sin. Shift your focus from your anger onto me who is the provider of your joy. And if we don't deal with our conflict or our anger in a timely manner, we're giving the devil a foothold in our community. As we store up anger, as it lingers day after day after day, you may tell yourself you're done with it, but you're not. And it is affecting the community around you. Not just the person that you're angry at, but even your friends that you keep gossiping to. Don't give the devil an opportunity. How have you been letting anger dominate an area of your life? Let your joy in Jesus be greater. Give it up. The sun is down. Give it up. Start fresh. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Play number three. Replace laziness and greed with hard work and generosity. Paul uses a thief to paint this, this imagery, this picture of somebody that's stealing, but what stealing is is laziness and greediness. Many of us in this room will say, hey, I'm not a thief, right? I don't rob banks. I don't steal Reese's from convenience stores. 
whatever floats your boat, right? But let me ask you this. Are you stealing homework answers? Are you mooching off somebody else to do your homework so that you can be lazy and copy them? If that's the case, you're a thief. You need to start doing honest work. You need to start laboring and actually not just stop stealing, you need to start helping people in need. So if that's you, guess what? Paul is saying, don't just stop cheating off other people's homework. Be a tutor. Go do something about it. How about in your community? Are you a taker or a giver? In your relationships, are you somebody that is lazy and relies on other people to feed your soul? Or are you a giver? Are you somebody that's working hard, digging into scriptures so that you can give? Do you show up to connection group saying, what can I get out of it? Or do you show up to connection group and say, what can I contribute tonight? Don't be a thief. Work hard and be generous. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Replace corrupting talk with words that are beneficial and used to build others up. What's interesting about this text is the word corrupting here, it's the only time in the New Testament that this word is used to describe something that's not material. The literal word means to decay. So your words can either cause something to decay or it can build up. As you look at your relationships, imagine the people around you. Their spiritual life is a plant. Are you putting water on it or weed killer? Because Paul cares more about the type of language that you use. He cares how it affects other people. Are your words building up? Verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Are you living in step with God's Spirit or are you living in the flesh? I find it really interesting that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. It's really sad because God's Spirit has come and it has sealed us. He has sealed us. Meaning he has put his stamp of ownership on our souls to secure us for the rest of eternity. But he wants us to live for him. If Jesus is our Lord, we need to live for him because he runs our life, right? If he owns us, we need to be in step with him. The day of redemption is Christ's return. And to not grieve the Holy Spirit, we have to live lives that are pleasing to God. What part of your life would you hate to be participating in when Jesus comes back? Stop doing it. We're the closest now we've ever been to Jesus coming back. Stop doing what you're doing that is offensive to him and start living for God. Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness 
Let all wrath, let all anger, all clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Replace bitterness, anger, and ill will with kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. To what extent? Forgive how? As God in Christ forgave you. We need to remember that. Not only to the extent and measure, but also how God in Christ forgave us. Because we can sometimes claim forgiveness in the name of sweeping something under the rug and saying we forget about it. That's not forgiveness. Unresolved forgiveness will ultimately lead to malice and anger. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you, which is this, to acknowledge the wrong, admit that it happened, and then to dismiss it completely, to no longer pass judgment, condemn, or even call it to mind. Ephesians 2, which we talked about several weeks ago, says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is how God in Christ forgave you. You don't have to wait for them. You need to forgive them because before you asked for forgiveness, God had put Jesus on the cross for you. Your forgiveness was purchased. Forgive others as God as Christ forgave you because you will never be offended to the extent that you have offended God in Christ. You have done more to wrong him, the savior of the world, than anybody could ever wrong you and you are not the savior of the world. You have room to forgive. Those who are forgiven much and loved much love and forgive much. That's a fact. Paul reminds us of this truth of the gospel once more to drive us to forgive others. But what it also does is this. It takes our eyes off of us. It takes our eyes off of this list. And it puts our eyes onto Jesus. Because leaving here tonight, you can't just hear a checklist it's not just work really, really hard and do all of these things. Be a truth teller. Be a hard worker. Tell the truth. Share. Because the reality is this. You will fail. But there is one who has never failed. His name is Jesus. And he says that as we trust in him, we have new identities. We are transformed, we are now empowered to live this life, not because we're good enough, not because we can measure up, no, because his spirit lives inside us. We're made new in Christ, created in his likeness and righteousness and holiness. 
what you need to hear tonight is that we serve a God that takes us in. When we are muddy and messed up, he doesn't say, no, no, no. Go clean yourself up and then come in my house. Many of us have viewed God, viewed God that, that way. That's not healthy. That's not who God is. He doesn't say, go clean your stuff up and then come to me. We serve a good father that says, come here, son. Come here, daughter. I see that you're messy. I see that you're muddy. Come in, I'll clean you up. That's the God we serve. Tonight's big idea is this. New life in Christ leads to new living in community. I said it earlier, the way you live shows the life that you have. The way you live shows the life that you have. It shows who you belong to. And trusting Jesus transforms you. As much as joining a football team made me gain 47 pounds in five months, so much more will trusting Jesus transform your life. I've experienced it firsthand, and as I look around this room and see many faces, I see countless stories of the same. Lives transformed from death to life. It alters the way we act to other people. What would it look like for us to leave here tonight and live this out? For some of you, it means new life in Jesus. As I talked about these two lifestyles, you identified the most with lifestyle one. And again, you serve a God that says, come in, I'll clean you up. You don't have to be perfect. No, come to me, the perfect one. You need to acknowledge the truth and have your mind renewed tonight. For some of you, the call is actually to get in community. As you look at this list, how many of those things can you do on your own? You can, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, I'll tell you that. But, man, lying, it's all of this doing this to other people. Replace your lying. Go tell the truth. Don't be angry at them. Move forward in being sinless. Replace laziness. Work hard. Be generous. You've been treating your faith walk like it's an individual sport. You need to get on a team. Be a team member. Contribute. Get around people that are going to make you better because we're on this mission together. And last but not least, you need to repent and replace. As I walked through that list, maybe something hit and you're like, dang, that's something I need to do. Maybe you have somebody you've been lying to that you just need to go tell the truth. Maybe you have unresolved conflict that you need to go and talk about. Could even be with somebody in this room. Maybe you need to forgive somebody that you have considered to be unforgivable. But as you've wrestled with this reality that you actually, in many cases, were the unforgivable one, <laughs> You are the unforgivable one that God crossed the chasm in Christ coming from heaven to earth to save you. You feel that and you now recognize that you are free to forgive. 
Whatever your next step is tonight, I pray that you would do it. That you wouldn't suppress the truth as you feel the weight of conviction because conviction is a good thing. It hurts in the moment, but it's designed to draw us deeper into relationship with God in Christ. Like rubbing alcohol on a wound, it cleanses us. It heals us and makes us whole.